0: From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company, LiquidNet. Joining me from the far end of the North Fork of Long Island is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from the world headquarters of Impact Alpha in the San Francisco Bay Area is editor and CEO, David Bank. Hi, David. Hey, you guys. Well, David and Imogen, let's talk about failure. Failure is good. That's the Silicon Valley party line, from successful people at least. Among impact investors, though, failure isn't always viewed in the same favorable light. Go figure. On today's show, we're going to look at the meltdown of the emerging markets private equity firm, Abrage Group, to take a broader look at failure in impact investing. David, you've been covering the Abrage Group. What can you tell us about their apparent failure and what it might mean for impact investing?
1: We feel a special obligation to get all over this because we were quite I wouldn't say taken in, but you might say taken in by the Abraj story before this all broke. Um, Arif Naqvi, the founder of this Abraj group, it's based in Dubai. He's born in Pakistan. He was the phenom of private equity. And one way he became the phenom of private equity, I think he had $14 billion under assets under management at Abraj, was because he was the absolute champion of Sustainable Development Goal investing, SDG investing, and he called that out as a huge opportunity. And they were behind a bunch of reports that laid out the opportunity. And he would go to big conferences like the Milken Conference and do, you know do keynotes and call out his private equity colleagues about why they didn't see the you know sustainable opportunities. And he was all over the UN you know week you know talks, keynoting all over town um, last year. Then comes this spectacular meltdown which is just you know for for you know for leaving everything else aside just like one of the few kind of running news stories we've got in impact investing where there's players and politics and leaks and reports and auditors and investigations and it's kind of like real real news in impact investing
0: and can you tell us a little bit more about the the actual health fund that they set up and who some of those backers were
1: Well, that is kind of our lens on it. I mean, Abraj, like I say, is this $14 billion firm, but the $1 billion Abraj Growth Markets Health Fund is a a particular deal or a particular structure that we've been following for a while because it had a bunch of impact investors, most notably the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which had $100 million of that billion dollar fund. And there were other big investors, OPIC and, and um, IFC and CDC in the UK and others, Proparco, I think, in France. And it was a major, like I say, sustainable development goal number three initiative that was going to have a very ambitious, and I thought, that's what I say, we thought at the time, very smart strategy of building out these health ecosystems in the megacities of the 21st century. So think Lagos and Karachi and Mumbai, all the way up from primary clinics to tertiary care to diagnostics, you know, networked fully, all 21st century cost advantages of digital everything, and really solve the healthcare problem of the of the developing world, which is all you know, going to be in these cities that all you know, going to have 20, 30, 40 million residents, and we thought, wow, that's impressive and ambitious and worth following. So we were on it from that point of view, and then comes you know, accounting scandals and and, and you know, misallocation of funds and and commingling between accounts, and the whole thing kind of came un, un,
0: un, unglued in a in spectacularly short order. And what do you mean by became unglued? How did this meltdown actually uh, break down? And and was it a meltdown uh, around their impact investing fund specifically, or was it around the overall? That's where we get
1: into a bunch of things we don't quite know yet. But I would say the headline is, no, this does not appear to have anything to do with the investment thesis at all. It has to do with much more bread and butter you know fund accounting practices and commingling of funds and you know how you get how you cover you know different debts and in fact that Reef nakfi just got pulled up on a bounce check charge as well i mean the whole thing has come you know morphed into many many legal disputes all, all the way from dubai to the cayman islands and and everything else and they're in liquidation in the cayman islands and there's I don't know what you call it—a bidding war. Imogen knows all more about this, how this really goes down. But there's a court-supervised, you know, dissolution of the thing between a bunch of other private equity firms that want to take over the assets and continue to manage them. And so there's one set of players taking over the bulk of the abrage, the most of the fourteen billion. And then there's because it's this specific kind of impact fund, there's another set of players, overlapping set of players, I should say, taking over the one billion dollar fund. So the, you know, the fund still exists. And the question is, who will manage it? And then, by extension, who will carry out that impact strategy that, like I say, was fairly impressive at the time?
0: So, Imogen, what is this uh, – what's your take on Abraj and what does this uh, speak to uh, the state of impact investing and and the, you know, the the cavalry that has come in the form of uh, mainstream uh, institutional investors?
2: So you know, one of the things that makes me most happy about this is is listening to David go back to his roots as like a financial journalist and like an. He old still is school... a financial journalist. No, no, but like an old school like reporter, right? I mean, journalists often take a lot of criticism for like you know liking bad news, and I take umbrage at that because I don't think that's true at all. But I think what we do like is we like. We like a good story, and we like tension, and we like something that you can like really dig into, right? And this, this has all the elements of that, um, and you know, and what I think is so important. Two things I think are really important about it, and and they're they're interrelated, right? This is, this is a financial scandal, right? It's not an impact investing scandal. It's a just a general investment scandal. This happens in alternative investing not on a unregular basis right and again just say
1: just say imagine if you could what you mean by alternative investing because sort that's of always hedge funds private category. equities
2: uh, real assets illiquid privately illiquid mostly illiquid i mean hedge funds aren't privately private markets privately held closed end funds Right, that
1: and these things do seem to be always registered in the Cayman Islands, well, yeah, and because, it's, else, and um, because that's the way they're structured, legal, right?
2: It's to do with yeah, tax yeah. and how you you have offshore funds, right? So, again, I mean, this reminds me a lot of a firm called DB's One, which I read about many years ago, which was a hedge sort of hybrid hedge fund structure that invested in a lot of securitized assets and that came out of trouble for exactly the same question of how was it how was it using its funds and it turned out that actually the guy who ran it temporarily lent some money to himself in order to buy a private jet so he could fly to Asia. You know, this isn't
0: as as one needs to do. Speaking of what journalists
1: love, once you have a marquee moment like yes. that, you you you, you 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 get it into print as often as possible.
2: So and and so but my point is it's like this is to me, you know, this is this is what is missing from the impact dialogue, right, is a critical eye, is getting into the weeds of what people are doing and how this stuff works. And I mean, again, Impact Alpha is the exception in that it tries to do that. Um, But, you know, so much of the conversation is, frankly, boosterism, right? And it's not, it's not deep enough, and it's not critical in a sort of like questioning, not in a negative enough sense. And this comes down to the the fact that this is investing. And therefore, when you make investment decisions, you need to do that with real due diligence, real oversight and real real rigor. And I think the the danger and what people should be concerned about um, is that they don't do that enough when they're making their impact investment decisions because they get distracted by like the mission and the story and the feel-good factor, and they don't spend enough time looking under the hood, and that can be what, what I think is really interesting here is, is that even, is that going to be shown to be all the more so when we're talking about you know you think oh well this is a real private equity firm right no problem they should know what they're doing and lo and behold that's the one that blows up right so so are we going to find that that's all the more so when we have tradition like sort of mainstream asset managers entering impact? And if so, what is the reason for that? And is it potentially because they see this as kind of like, you know, an easy crowd, so they don't necessarily do the same diligence that they would do otherwise? I don't don't know, but I think you could make a case for that.
1: Well, I mean, just speaking of this, the arc of the story, I mean, we're we're in the middle of this one, not not at the end. So there is all the look back of what went wrong with it, but there's also the look ahead. As I said, there's this billion dollar fund, there's this ambitious strategy, and then there's these private equity players competing to manage that, which you know will give them their fees and their and their and their you know tr- whatever the, the 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 other benefits are of that fund. But among them are um, you know folks like Colony Capital, Cerberus, um, TPG, reportedly, right? TPG as we as we've talked about on the show has a impact fund called T- part of TPG Growth and then part of TPG Growth is the Rise fund and that's got some very high profile impact investors a- a- as well so they could presumably fold this strategy into into that but the other ones are much you know I think it'd be a stretch to have called Colony Capital or Cerberus uh, capital uh, impact investors today. It's not but just they that they're have, not impact they get investors. Fund, wouldn't they be impact
2: investors? But to the best of my knowledge, Colony Capital doesn't know an awful lot about healthcare, right? So if I was the Gates Foundation, if I was, you know, and typically in an auction like this, the investors have, my my recollection is that the investors have some say so, you have a sort of a key man provision, right? So they probably they have, have
1: the, they, they some, definitely have the. They definitely exactly. have the ability to pull their money out, which Gates so, insists on... So, again,
2: it raises a cases. really interesting question of, like, what kind of what kind of profile do you want for your manager of this fund, right? Do you want... I mean, TPG rise is the obvious natural fit, but, you know, do you want a traditional private equity firm? If so, presumably, you want somebody who has some kind of background in emerging markets, some kind of background in healthcare, but, but where does... How do you get comfort that they are really going to adhere to the sort of the impact principle? And I think that you know this tension exactly. between sort of how much money do private entr- does, does private equity or venture capital make an impact and how important is the impact to the return and to the investment reminds me of a, another well-known, impact investment blow up or failure, I guess, um, which was SKS Microfinance.
0: For those unfamiliar, walk us through uh, what SKS uh, Microfinance was aiming to do and what the scandal there was. So material.
2: SKS was a micro lender that was set up in India by a guy called Vikram who was I'm born in America, but his parents were Indian. And he decided that he wanted to set up a for-profit micro lender, which was unusual at the time because most micro lenders had been not-for-profit. So he went, after he graduated from college, he went back to India and he, after a little while, launched this business. And it became this sort of poster child for what impact investing could be, which was that you would lend money to the, the, the model was um, sort of following the traditional micro lending model, which is that you would go into a village, you would lend small amounts of money to women in that community, and that they would go use that money to do something like buy a goat so that they could generate revenue by which they would would, would repay the loan. And they built this very successful business, and they then IPO'd it Um with the backing of a number of venture capital firms, um, including Sequoia. And so it was very successful. Um, you know, And again, you know, um, sort of Akula was considered like the poster child for what microfinance, which at the time was kind of what a lot of people thought impact was, could be, and how to sort of do well by doing good. And then the whole thing spectacularly blew up.
1: This sort of predates my covering this field, but I'm, I'm, I like this history, um, Imogen, because it kind of has become a Rorschach test, the SKS microfinance for impact. You know, there's kind of two camps, as you well know, with the, you know, there was a spectacular IPO. Oh, we took a customer segment, low income people borrowing, and we turned it into a, you know, investable asset class and off to the races. And there's definitely the folks, as you mentioned, you know, in the investment community in Silicon Valley who were part of that, who see it that way, I'm not, you know won't name names here because it's a it's a long involved story. But and then there's folks who say absolute example of I think what you're what you're saying, which is, you know, did they lose impact along the way and, and well, I think what's it so yeah.
2: Vikram Rula basically got pushed out of the firm and he just wrote a book that came out recently but is banned or has been pulled from the shelves because some of the people that he was critical of, um he's he's very critical of the sort of the, the executives that, two of the executives that he brought in to run the firm who then according to his story, pushed him out, and also key people on the board, including the guy who was the head of Sequoia in India at the time that this happened.
1: So are you saying, for sake of our listeners, to be clear, are you saying the headline is former CEO's book banned, too hot for, you know, too hot to handle? Too hot for impact Yes. Or... <laughs> That's a stake of scandals that journalists love.
2: I got hold of a ba- I got hold of a banned copy or well, my friend, to be honest, got hold of a banned copy but before the, the ban was imposed and so it has now been circulating on the impact investing underground. Um,
0: the dark web of the impact yeah, investing.
2: exactly. And if you can get hold of it, <laughs> I highly recommend reading it.
0: Yeah, without without naming names or pointing fingers, exactly. But what what's the gist of that? The CEO, his insight, uh, and his how how did he get burned by these mainstream venture capitalists, or did the impact get burned?
2: It's too convoluted to sort of get into the minutia of it. But basically, he was subject to an internal coup, and some of the sort of scurrilous stuff is his allegations that. Uh, people like tapped his phones and like had him like follow, like had his driver, like, you know, they were basically spying on him.
0: Um, but, 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 but what was the, what was the...
2: But the, the, the gist of... <laughs> it's, it's awesome, I recommend oh, really go ahead. it. But the gist of the tension in venture capital is can you... So again, they, they wanted, there, there was a lot of pressure to go away from this traditional micro-lending model to a, a sort of almost like a more aggressive lending approach. So... For example, they were they started selling um, life insurance through the st- same distribution engine that they had created with the micro lending, and that comes with that that's, that's that that comes with the same challenges. But then, more to the point, they started saying to so the whole point about micro lending is is it, it's not collateralized, right? That there is no collateral. It's basically sort of the community that guarantees the loan, but there's nothing. You're not your cow it's is a not social collateral. network.
0: Val- yeah. vouchers for you.
2: So they started looking at lending against gold, and that's a completely different model. And that is, you know, and that's much more, it's much more easy to make that into sort of exploitative lending. And so there was this huge, what, according to the book, there was this huge pressure by executives within SKS and on the board to move into this di- this different model. And what is striking, and I, I mean, at this doesn't strike me as the scandalous part of the story. I mean, what was striking was the way in which there was a lack of confidence or a lack of a belief that the the sort of the doing well by doing good part was the the glue that kept the whole thing together. That in order to be successful, in order to keep growing, you had to become more aggressive and that that would almost by definition lead you down a, a path of exploitation.
0: So I think I think what we have here, though, we have imagine we have two different two different models of failure. So with SKS, what you're describing is where it's a tension between uh, the impact and the commercial uh, prospects of the company. Uh, and there's a tension between the who had control of the company and who was going to be pushing in what direction. Should should the company try to grow uh, for for growth's sake, or should the company grow with an inclusive and sustainable business model in mind, with an impact in mind? With with Abraj, it sounds like it's it wasn't a tension between those who wanted Abraj to have impact and those who wanted Abraj to maximize financial returns. It was more just a uh, run of the mill, if not salacious. Financial scandal, uh, uh, so to speak, and so that it wasn't—it wasn't a matter of better alignment with the mission.
2: In both cases, the impact is somehow external to or window dressing from the operations and the investing business rationale, right? And so, you know, if you were truly integrating impact, you would say that. I, my impact due diligence extends to the business itself and how it operates, and frankly, the executives involved, as well as you know the the, the sort of sexy outcome that I think I'm getting at the end of it. And similarly, it should be if you if, if you as you know a venture capital investor or whatever believe in the value of impact, then you shouldn't be you you shouldn't have a distrust that it should be inherent within the profitability it shouldn't somehow be antith- antithetical so to
0: there it. shouldn't be a trade off
2: yeah no it should be the opposite it should be this is this is the, you know the, this is the, the stumbling block that so many investors still get caught up on that it it should be impact should be the thing that provides value it should be the alpha provider so it should be impact alpha david <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> For all you following along with the, <laughs> the drinking game, <laughs> yeah. uh, David, uh, weigh in please. Okay, I think the
1: thread between the two. I think you did a good job. Sp- uh, why they're different. The thread between the two is the impact that a failure has, and a high-profile failure has on the proposition more broadly. As a, you know, in a sense of what narrative does it feed? And one narrative, obviously, it can feed is oh, these people are you know everybody's a crook, and you know this impact thing is just another you know line they're trying to feed us to run away with our money. That's a, a Ever-present, you know, storyline that journalists, frankly, and others do do like, and therefore it seems incumbent on me. And this is what we wrote about in the, in Impact Alpha was it's incumbent on the people in the Debrage case, just like it was in the SKS case, of why this, what w- what this means for the broader mission for which those investments were made, and how that becomes you know, not only salvaged, but, you know, doubled down on and recommitted to, right? So if this becomes a way to say we're not going to fund universal health care for all on a mass scale, on a market-based footing that is equitable and inclusive, and we're instead going to go some other direction. That's an extremely bad outcome, regardless of whether it was just a run-of-the-mill accounting scandal. So the champions of that investment have to step forward and say, this is how we're going to safeguard that mission. And more than that, we're going to like double down on that mission. And we're going to do it, as you say, Imogen, with better safeguards and with without all this scandal, because the scandal is not helpful to the broader mission.
2: And I do think that's where it's a double-edged sword for impact, right? In that the big concern for traditional investors around impact investing is that you know impact doesn't perform and so then you have a case like a branch where you're not where impact irrespective of if it performed or not it's a massive scandal right and that that gives an excuse for people not to invest but that happens all the again it happens all the time in finance so so there should be impact doesn't need to be held to a higher standard than traditional investing however It does need to hold itself to the standard of investing. And we shouldn't be like so happy. Impact shouldn't be so happy that like, you know, uh, 13 billion, I guess it was the time private equity funders decided to pay attention to it, that it loses its mind and just goes ahead and like, you know, dive straight in. Well, no, but I don't think
1: that that's I mean, I don't think that's. I mean, your point is this is exactly what you said earlier, why journalists like like controversy is not just because it's salacious and whatnot, but because it unearths documents and things that let you see how things really work. And um, and, you know, for example, the Braj case had to do had to meet a higher standard, the health fund, because it was a program related investment. We've talked about those on this show as well. I won't won't get into all that. But there are is actual impact um, requirements on that that will be interesting to watch as it plays out.
2: So that's a really interesting question, though, right? So, so does, but maybe requiring that it meets that higher standard, other standards weren't looked at, right? So you say, okay, we well, you need to meet X, Y, Z impact standard, but I'm not gonna do the the doodle just look under the hood at the operations. Well, right? then but, the irony,
1: of course, the irony, of course, is that it was that group of impact investors who set this whole thing off. So this, while it wasn't. Only an impact scandal you mean, you and an Impact have investors set it, it with... off
0: in the sense of they're the ones that uncovered the accounting irregularities. That's what you mean.
1: Right. These four investors sent in an auditor because they you had mean, some like, questions about What and the that, hell have you guys and been and doing and with that the was money, the, right? That was the that was the piece of yarn that, that got pulled and the whole thing unraveled.
2: I would make the case that I think impact investing needs failures because I think that it needs to grow up and I think that it needs to be more robust in its Diligence and its rigor, um, but I also think it's important to recognize that, like, it's you know when you're talking about providing capital to or investing in sort of poor and at-risk communities, they are much less able to withstand failure.
1: Now you've got now now we've got the makings of another great podcast yeah. because this this is exactly the tension and and the question is not so much what. You, what intention you start out with, but what happens when you get to a crux point that requires some tough choices. And so then
2: this... And that's and what it, happens. And this yeah, essentially yeah. becomes a governance question, right? Like, how do you ensure that that intentionality remains within your DNA throughout the throughout your lifespan and throughout the process? And so something like a B Corp is meant to ensure that. What is unclear to me and what remains unclear to me is to what extent... That intentionality can be maintained when private equity firms, when venture capital firms, when other players who don't, on on a fundamental level, still appear not to buy into sort of the impact agenda, get involved. And my impression from both of these examples is that the impact community hasn't yet been able to sort of untie that knot.
1: Imogen, that's exactly right. That's exactly the point Abraj is at now. So we'll track that, that point going forward.
0: All right. Well, that will be uh, a worthwhile future podcast, but that's going to do it for this episode of this Returns on Investment podcast. Thanks to Image Murrow smith and thanks to David Bank.
2: Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, David.
0: Uh, special thanks, as always, to our uh, technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build a growing economy that's inclusive and sustainable. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.